I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. I'm Terry Tejo, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 27 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. 27, 27 episodes, really I know, and truly. I know, I know, and it's been too long, guys. We I know, know. I know. We're, but we're finally back. We, we've been traveling, you know, light life gets in the way, but mm-hmm. we're back. And we have, a, we have a ton of stuff to cover in this episode, so... Uh, and we're going to start, we, we got a lot of great messages uh, at 3 on the LHQ, and we're going to spend some of the podcast to address your queries. And we actually, we've gotten so much mail that we're going to save some for later. So don't worry if you don't hear your question or your comment. Uh, we will get to it. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, but before <laughs> we get to the mailbag, we're going to talk about the recent uh, imbroglio around To Kill a Mockingbird. More specifically... Who gets to present which stage version? In recent weeks, uh, the uh, estimable producer Scott Rudin, who produced the Aaron Sorkin adaptation that's currently on Broadway, and I liked more than other people did at this table, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, he sent cease and desist letters to tiny little companies around the country that were using an earlier adaptation by Christopher Christopher Sergal, Uh, that was licensed by Dramatic Publishing, a licensing company that does a lot of uh, uh, theater around the country, and that was authorized by Harper Lee back in 1869. 1869. 1869. Where did that come from? Sorry. Anyway, uh, that was authorized by Harper Lee in 1969, or adaptations of that adaptation. Now, the plot thickens because it was originally understood that the dramatic publishing version was not meant to be used in professional productions, although these started to be produced in the 1980s. Hmm. Some of them were based on the serval version, but not always word for word. Sometimes they incorporated elements from Horton Foote's screenplay for the movies. Aye. Sometimes they put in other stuff of their own. All right, all right. So anyway, fast forward to 2019 and Atticus LLC. Can you believe that, by the way, that he called it Atticus well, LLC? it is all about Atticus, this production, so it seems right to me. Anyway, yeah. It was created by Scott Rudin, uh, and he sent letters to these professional and amateur companies that are putting on or plan to put on the version of To Kill a Mockingbird licensed by Dramatic Publishing. Not his, obviously. All right, so then, you know, hysteria ensues. Um, the latest development being that Atticus LLC has, as an olive branch, offered the companies that wanted to produce the Sergal version the opportunity to uh, now do the Sorkin adaptation for free. Yes, that's the one currently on Broadway. Right. So, I, I, I mean, the question is, like, why do we make of this situation? I mean, is Scott Rudin bullying little companies so they use his version mm-hmm. because, you know, one version will rule them all? Right. And... Uh, and so, and we can also talk about like what is the role of estates? It's right. something that comes up a lot in well, in everything really, but of, co- of course in theater. And also, is one version better than the other? Mm. Well, I can speak personally to that last point because I've actually seen and reviewed the Christopher Searle version. It was produced in Florida four years ago by Orlando Shakespeare Theater, one of the really good companies down there. And I wondered how did. To Kill a Mockingbird work on stage. This was before there was any talk of a Sorkin version. So I went to see it and wrote about it. 
Uh, it was an extremely good production. As for the adaptation, it's very faithful. Uh, you might actually call it literal. Uh, it does make use of an offstage narrator. It's not particularly inspired, but it's modest, it's workmanlike, and unlike the Sorkin version, it does not alter the novel in ways that are, I think, alien to, to Lee's original intent. I actually think it's superior to the Sorkin adaptation, which, uh, as I wrote in my review in the Wall Street Journal, I said it was a grotesque caricature of the book. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, regardless of what your taste is, it is a very different version, and it is quite arguably... It's arguably better than than Sorkin and incontestably closer to the book. Well, all right. So I, I disagree about that. But I, I mean, I don't I didn't see the circle. I actually like the Sorkin version. But but here's the question, you know, for people out there to understand what, you know, a producer blocking other productions of, of or variations on an adaptation in other parts of the country is a. You know, is a is a may people don't may not understand why they do that. I mean, is the you know is the intent there to uh, have one singular artistic voice on this piece, or is it to you know funnel all the interested parties who want to see this uh, uh, piece into uh, into New York to see it uh, solely? Is that why we put this blackout sort of on other productions? That's often the case with other shows that are. Um, currently on Broadway or in a major production in New York. I, I, yes, but they don't do a nationwide blackout. Uh, right, it's usually, usually geographic, usually, right. Right, usually the way it works is that it, the Sorkin is what is called in, in legal parlance a first-class production of To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. And usually there's a geographical boundary, say you can't, you can't do To Kill a Mockingbird 25 miles away from New York or wherever it's being produced. Uh, however, however it's done, to block it out nationwide is, as far as I know, completely unprecedented. Mm. Uh, well, it's, well, especially because the older adaptation was had the green light from the estate. Right. So it's not like it was some kind of outlaw bootleg. <laughs> right. <laughs> that I mean, actually, it was it was you had a green light from Harper Lee herself. Right. The Sorkin one has had the green light from. The estate, but I don't. What I don't understand is whether this this emanated originally from the producer or from the the estate, because the estate has been um, obstreperous from the beginning. Yes, uh, they sued the producer based on an early draft, of, I think, of the script, or at least their intimations of what the script was going to be like for the Sorkin production. So this this has been a very activist estate, and I don't know if um, if this was uh, an attempt by Rudin to placate, mollify the estate, or if this, you know, because they want, a, you know, a new version to be done around the country. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not clear on what the, uh, what really the intent is if, if ultimately everybody can do the Sorkin version for free in these, uh, the, these companies that were planning to do the circle. Yeah, because apparently there, so it doesn't seem to be necessarily, I mean, I'm not sure, like, what are the financial implications? Well, who's 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 getting paid? That's really the question. Mm. I mean, well, I mean, they're going after tiny little companies. Like, right. what is that? I mean, are these people, or we're going to see it in wherever they are in the country, where are, are they going to travel to New York? Is that what they want? That seems insane. It's not the point. Well, estates exist to maximize income flow. And let us not forget that To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway is a huge hit, uh, a monster In spite hit. of Terry. It is. 
Yeah, I mean, whatever its merits, it is a tremendous success and is likely to remain so. And uh, I, I can't help but suspect that the estate's subsequent attitude toward the two adaptations has been conditioned by this fact that they've got a cash cow running on Broadway. And they're thinking probably that, that people will want to do the Broadway version, the official famous Broadway version. Now, how practical that is, I don't know. The Broadway version is an awfully big machine. Uh, the circle adaptation can be done on a very small scale. I saw it done uh, in the round in a in a in a, a, a modest adaptation in a modest staging. And I think that that I don't know whether Sorkin can be done in a modest way or not. But either way, um, what is happening here is that Sorkin and the estate have decided that that. They want to cut the action out of the circle version, and uh, I just well, this is an unusual situation. Yeah, but also remember, uh, Terry, that uh, they're going to tour this production. It's very right. unusual for a, for a straight play to get any kind of uh, head of steam up in a national tour, and I suspect that if they feel if they're in their minds, the circle version is somehow antiquated or not up to the theatricality of the Sorkin version, that it will discourage people from revisiting if that's if you know because word of mouth is often you know so such an important driving force and if people in Des Moines or wherever this Atlanta or wherever this is being done say you know it doesn't really work on the stage I wouldn't bother you know that they feel they'll feel they have been somehow discouraged from you know before they get out on the road with this piece well they're going to see the stamp of litigation in the process mm -hmm. and there any theater company with any sense is going to say well gosh let's not mess with the circle version you know we might get scott rudin on our case right right well, let's and, do this other version with the the imprimatur of broadway and also scott rudin apparently is making it available for free but that's for now like how long is right. that going to last i think it's for we the don't know i think it's isn't it mostly for the companies that we're planning right. to do it because i think that's right. of the course idea. the question is like how much is he going to charge once that initial wave is is over and out. Mm -hmm. So well, I, presumably there will be, uh, I assume, a school version of you know this production of the Sorkin version that will be available. Also, remember the other thing that's important to note is that the characters of Calpurnia and um, um, the the uh, the accused. I forget his name. Um, goodness, uh, how could I forget his name? Anyway, the 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 their more prominent roles in the Sorkin version than they really even are in the novel. I don't know about the Sergal version and how the portrayal of Calpurnia uh, is is used. It's just but, like the book. It's just like the book. So, I mean, there is some argument here that, that we're giving more voice to the characters of color in the, uh, in the Sorkin version, and therefore it's the more contemporary uh, take. And that may be that I think, you know, yeah. if you're thinking about school groups yes. and, you know, younger people seeing this, they should hear that voice. They should feel I'm, that. I'm just really bummed because the voice that's oh, Tom been Robinson. really, thank you. The voice that's Tom been Robinson. really cut from the Sorkin adaptation is Scout's voice. So, yes. yes, you 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 gain some, but you lose a whole lot. Mm. Uh, that that really is what it's diluted. That you're right. Bummed yeah, well, out a lot. I would say that the voice that's cut out of the Sorkin version is Harper Lee's voice. That he well, has yes. he's written a kind of new play 
that is a variation on To Kill a Mockingbird that does what he thinks uh, Kill a Mockingbird should have done. He's given us a woke version of, of To Kill a Mockingbird. And however justified you think that is for political reasons, uh, it, it seems to me self-evidently to be a perversion of the intent of the author of one of the most famous and popular American novels of the 20th century. To me, that's a big deal. And mm -hmm. and if at the same time, if Rudin is therefore using his version as as a a lever to prevent people from doing a more faithful version of the play, something's wrong here. At least that's the way I feel. People want to be able to choose. Well, I, I think what this is saying, really, the, the takeaway from this for me is the incredible power that Scott Rudin has on American theater. And it's, just, it's not just New York, it's, it's national. Um, and, and that, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, it just is. Yes. Uh, and I just cannot think of a m more powerful person in New York theater right now. I really can't. Mm. That, that to me, he is it. Um, and that's probably something we could discuss at some point, but... Um, well, I, 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 would, I would have to say that, generally speaking, you know, bringing plays by Taylor Mack and uh, Aaron Sorkin and uh, uh, Lucas Nath to Broadway is not exactly a nefarious uh, goal. No, no, and, no. And, I mean, and frankly, he may be one of the most powerful people in American theater, but he's also one of the few who's producing plays on Broadway. Well, he's, very, right. he's very good at balancing the, the hits and the, well, and things the, that are a little right, like harder sales. the commercial sales. and the less commercial. He's very good at that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we could go on and on about Scott Rudin, and perhaps one day we will in more detail <laughs> one day we should one, one day we should uh we, we, we're gonna go to the mailbag now because we've got some like we've got some really good stuff and i wanted to start with a message from Mackenzie milliken uh which is mostly about our discussion of slave play uh and that's very much topical right now too because slave play was by uh, a new playwright young new playwright called jeremy o'harris and his second play has just opened uh, in New York, and it's called Daddy. Slave Play was in the fall, so just like maybe like six months apart, which is amazing for like a 25, 25 or 26-year-old who's still enrolled at, <laughs> at, the, at Yale. Um, so here are some excerpts from uh, Mackenzie's message. Uh, so he or she, I'm not sure, uh, well. Yeah, no. Um, no, Mackenzie's right. a woman. Oh, it, it is. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Uh, I was disappointed at the discussion of slave play and I urge you to seek out more diverse voices for a future discussion of that production. In particular, I was very frustrated by the lack of context or explanation of what the show was trying to do before diving into deeply negative criticism. Uh, Actually, I may, may, maybe we should address that first because the, 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 the other stuff okay. is a little different in topic. And I wanted to say specifically about that is... That happened a lot with the coverage of the play, which I think has led to a lot of misunderstanding because I think a lot of critics were very cautious about not spoiling a, mm. a big reveal in the play. Mm -hmm. So that led to accusations that we were not giving context or explanation of the show I was trying to do. Well, that was very hard to do in a review because, or on a podcast because if you go into deep, then you're accused of spoiling the play and the big reveal. And I think, I mean... For me personally, that's why I was cautious about explaining. And I think at this point, we can actually talk about 
mm. what's going on that was like six months ago uh, but that, I think that was a big reason and I think that's also a reason why so many people on social media were very very quick to condemn the play without having seen it based on the reviews because the reviews were yes they kind of were a little incomplete about context yeah uh, you know whenever you have a reveal problem in a review at, at least i always go out of my way to say i'm not telling you something important to let people know that there is a reveal and that it's central to the effect of the show i mm-hmm. mean I, I at least want them to know that they're not getting the whole signal and i, I uh, I will say I didn't really speak a lot about slave play the last time we had a, a very brief, I thought a fairly concise discussion, but also I am working on a big piece at the moment about Jeremy Harris and some of the other playwrights of color who are being um, uh, featured in theaters not only in New York but around the country like Alicia Harris and uh, Jackie Sibley's Drury. They're 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 doing some of the most dynamic and interesting theater at the moment. So sometimes my, um, I can't quite. It's very hard to sort of frame discussion while you're trying to frame an article, uh, especially one that isn't necessarily straight criticism. So I, mm-hmm. I apologize if I'm not being as uh, uh, clear clear about um, I, I, uh, the, my my thoughts about some of these works because I'm really trying to process. A larger question of what what they're um, investigating and bringing to us. Yeah, we really do have to save something for the guys who pay us, you know. Exactly. <laughs> right. Correct. Well, well, one of the things also is I think we've been very supportive on this podcast of uh, writers of color sure. and, and female ones. Uh, in fact, I think I said on another one that I thought right now the most dynamic, thought-provoking, thought-provoking theater. That is happening is coming from the African American uh, com- or, or, or writers. Uh, that is to me, there is like there's absolutely no doubt that they're like leaps and bounds ahead in terms of content, but also form. Form and content are so intricately wedded into what's going on there. I can find it really bracing and, and exciting. Yeah. Nobody comes close. And also, it, that what's happening also is there um, that theater companies are. F- featuring more of mm-hmm. their work. They're yes. not just having a slot for a writer of color. Right. They're actually looking for, you know, more opportunities. So anyway, so Mackenzie also talks about uh, Jeremy O'Harris going on social media to talk about being shamed and attacked for slave play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she says, quote, I'd love to note that it's not dissimilar to the conversation around slave pay in this past week's podcast. Isolating the most provocative part of a show and describing it in uncomfortable t- details, she writes, as a means of demonstrating how not, a, how not good a show is, did not seem like an effective strategy for arts criticism. Um, what do you say to that, Elizabeth? Well, um I think that kind of links up to what we were talking about, the, the idea of context. But uh, also, Mackenzie said um, something very, I mean, Mackenzie M- goes on and says, you know, Jimmy Buffett doesn't receive racially motivated slurs when you trash his joke of a musical. I'd argue that there has to be context, nuance, and a healthy attempt to understand how a critic's whiteness could impact their viewing and understanding of a show about historical racial violence and oppression. V- very good point. I mean, there's no disagreeing with that. But I would also like to point out that what's been really interesting to me and fascinating was in the social media storm that followed Slave Play. And I think when we did the podcast, actually, that had not quite mushroomed as much as it did, um, is that the majority, or at least a whole lot of them, some of the most violent attacks against the show and against Jeremy Harris were from the black community. Mm. And the critics, which 
well, let's face it, honestly, were very supportive and positive. The show got great reviews in my mind. Sh did not deserve it, but whatever. I would say overall, the critical reception was very positive. We, sh we should um, just point out that Slave Play, uh, one of the most uh, talked about aspects of the show was that it starts with reenactments mm -hmm. of a white and black couples interracial couples uh, 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 dramatizing slave master sexual encounters. It's, mm -hmm. it's very highly, highly, highly charged and has really divided audiences as to what And I think we could say at this point that this is all part, because I think we're far enough into that, that it's all part of, uh, of, of couple, a session of couples therapy. So they're reenacting mm -hmm. or enacting Right, that's what we learned. Psychosexual fantasy. So that's right. that's the big reveal. But right, the right. first part, you're just like, well, okay. Um, <laughs> but so what's interesting to me was that the whole thing and Jeremy Harris and the, the lead the lead actress got death threats, and and New York Theater Workshop had to like install some kind of security mm. measure. I can't remember what it was. The actress had to withdraw from social media. It got so bad, um, and I was following that pretty closely on Twitter and. The most violent, vociferous uh, people against the play, one, had not seen it, and were not planning to, and usually the tweet started with, I have not seen it, and I'm not planning to, but it should, you know, I can't believe. And they, and they were, the ones I saw, they were very personal, were f from black people on Twitter. Mm. It's really complicated. It's like mind-boggling. I'm not sure that's <laughs> what Jeremy Harris um, expected, no, well, to say the least. Yeah, I didn't see Slave Play, uh, so I can't speak to it. Uh, but I, I absolutely agree with uh, uh, Peter that most of the really interesting playwrights that I'm, I'm following now, the younger ones, are black and or women. And I, I think their work is perfectly intelligible to critics of all kinds, critics who are willing to do the historical homework. And I'll go one step farther. I think that if, you, if you're writing a play that lacks general intelligibility, not just for a, a very narrowly defined audience, but for everybody who might come into the theater and see it, you're doing something wrong. Uh, I, I, I still believe devoutly that theater and art more generally should be an attempt to make a universal communication to 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 the phrase is all men in all conditions, and it also includes women. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know whether slave play fits that category or not, but I do know that the plays of Lynn Nottage do, the plays of Katori Hall do, uh, the plays of Lydia Diamond do. Uh, and these are playwrights who, whose content is absolutely racially informed and, and informed by the fact that they're women, but that can speak and to and be heard by everybody. I am a huge fan of, of Jackie Sibley's Drury, for instance. Uh, I, I think she's just like, she's, I, she's one of my top three or four favorite mm. playwrights right now. Like mm. there's, every time she has a show on, I haven't seen the new one yet, but I'm going to uh, this uh, Mary Seacole's good. Right. I saw it a couple of nights ago and loved it. I was absolutely yeah. knocked she's out by it. just incredible. Uh, and I think it is our duty to kind of champion voices like that. Sure. But at the same time, we have to be able to be critical when the work is not up to par. I did not think that Slave Play was up to par, and I think Daddy, the follow-up, is <laughs> is just beyond, just embarrassingly bad. There's no other way to put it. Uh -huh. We'll uh, get back to I, that. But I think there's a kernel, there's a kernel of talent in there that needs to be nurtured by people who are going to 
say no to Jeremy Harris mm. or rather no well you know no th this not working no this is too long no this does not need to be three hours yeah. um, and editing and and conversations are good well Let's let's we have anyway. to um, <laughs> let's move, move on. on. Yeah, let's let's uh, pull a yeah. let's Terry, pull a couple let's pull a couple of more letters out of the mailbag. Yes, from David Ackerman and Scott Abelman, both of whom wrote about filmed theater, both of whom pointed out that to see uh, filmed theater or video theater makes shows available to a lot of people who otherwise would not be able to see them. Uh, David says, "I can recall seeing one that was better than the live production." Stratford Shakespeare Festival produced Caesar and Cleopatra with Chris Plummer and Nikki James. I saw it live, but way in the back. The filmed version with the close-ups and alternative angles added much more nuance to the show than seeing it live. And Scott also points out that this is a great and affordable way to expose the family to theater. Uh, I'm quite struck by both of these quotes. Uh, my experience with seeing the Metropolitan Opera's productions uh, telecast in, in theaters is that they are not infrequently quite superior as a presentation to what you're seeing in the house because the Met is this giant barn where unless you've got a whole lot of money you're going to be seeing the show from Cleveland and uh, so there's a point to be made there what so you might as well see the show in Cleveland right, exactly. I, I, just, <laughs> I just wonder you know the, the, the camera work has gotten better much better uh, I just saw an Antony and Cleopatra that the National Theater did with, uh, with um, uh, Sophie Okonedo and mm. Ray Fiennes, and it was very fine. I just wonder, though, if we're just comparing, you know, that the comparison is with the stodgy old wooden-seeming film versions, because I still don't really enjoy seeing plays on film. Uh, it just isn't my thing. Let me share a memory with you. I saw Our Town for the first time on television in 1977. It was a, a network TV production. I think it was aired in primetime, directed by George Schaefer. It had a fabulous cast led by Hal Holbrook and Barbara Belgettis. You can still get it on DVD. It, and it was the first time I'd ever seen what I think is the greatest of all American plays. And it was a wonderful introduction to the play. But as I read these letters, I ask myself, is it also an introduction to theater to see a play being done on television if you have no experience with seeing shows in the theater. I just don't know. I mean, this was a this production, as, as if you look it up on YouTube, it's visible there, uh, it made a real effort to translate our town into the language of being in a TV studio. And it did a very successful, I, it was really, it really worked. But are you going to watch this and then say, I need to go see live theater? Or are you going to say, oh, here's a great experience. I'll have more experiences like this. That's what I wonder, just how communicable this experience is. Mm. Well, I, I think the, the, for me, the big point that these two uh, uh, letters say is that, well, sometimes you can't go to the theater. So that's the next big thing. N next big best thing. And I fully agree with that. It, I don't think it's a, it's not a replacement, but... If, the, if that's the only way you can see a production, yes, by mm. all means. I mean, it's fine. I grew up in an area where we had no live theater, and I watched it all on TV because, fortunately, at that time, there was a lot of theater on, on telecast. You mean on, the on Corsican French. Shakespeare? <laughs> no, no. There was a, I can assure you there was nothing. Uh, but anyway, so I watched theater on TV, and I loved it. Mm. So 
Um, I, I think it's great. But did it make what? you? Did it make you want to go to a theater to see a live production? That's kind of yes. What we're it did have that effect. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. There were actors uh, who were doing a mostly stage, famous for stage, and I would see them on TV, and I was like, I want to be that. I could hear they had shots of the audience, and they were seemed to be having a swell time. And I was yeah. like, that sounds fun. Yeah, I can. it's like, to me, it's drool on the pillow theater. It's it's oh, like you fall asleep halfway oh through God. watching on TV. Oh, my God. And you wake up, like, You're you know, your cheek me. is all wet because, you you know, you, you know, because, oh, yeah, it's, all, it's still on. Okay. That's just sort of my, I don't know. I'm just not a big fan of. Well, be, because we're lucky that we can see the real thing. But if if you're not, that's, I don't know. I know, I'm jaded. I'm jaded. <laughs> you know, in, on a later podcast, we should talk. We should talk at a later date on how each of us discovered theater. I I don't know that about either of you, uh, and I think that it would make a most interesting okay. chat, and it would be very relevant to this subject. I have I have a very vivid memory of the first play that really you know when you hear people saying that play whatever song changed my world. I have a very vivid memory of the, what that play was. So I'm going to save that for a lot of podcasts. Yeah, let's, so in let's the meantime, really come back to that. <laughs> so in the meantime, uh, we have a, a, a another yeah. inquiry from Colin Fleming Stumpf. Which is a great name, yes. by the way. <laughs> yes, Colin. We like your name. I'm a little irked at the at at the question, <laughs> not for the reason that you would imagine, because he really wants to know what else we do besides what we do for a living uh, in the hours that we're reviewing. He and it's it is it's like sort of I don't even want to raise the issue, but he says even if you're attending two to three shows a week and writing reviews for each, that doesn't seem like it would equate to a full forty-hour work week. I, 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 I Colin, I, I want you now to send us an assessment of what you do and how you do your entire forty-hour work week because. Believe it or not, uh, <laughs> there is other things to do besides see the shows and write the reviews. And it is, two to three well, is actually a low number for us. I think in terms oh, yeah. of how many shows we see, I think it's more on the uh, average of four to five. To six to seven. Right. And I realize, Colin, I'm being a little facetious. I know you, want, you, had a, you were curious to know what we think. It's, his other question was, is there research or light dramaturgy to be done before seeing a new play, perhaps interviewing artistic directors, playwrights, et cetera? And the answer is yes to all of the above. Yes. Plus, and I will say before I, I, I turn the microphone over to my uh, podcasters in uh, uh, my co-podcasters here. <laughs> my podcasters that, um, in crime. <laughs> that the job of being a theater critic, at least as it's defined for me, goes way beyond just reviewing a few shows. It goes to feature writing. It goes to writing trend pieces. Mm -hmm. And there is a tremendous amount of uh, research that goes into doing that. So, you know, 40 hours doesn't even cover... I what I do uh, as a critic, I say that you know there are some weeks when I'm doing sixty to seventy works as a critic There's and writer. I, I think of it the same way. I mean, like it, it's like for a teacher, the 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 class time may not be all that long. I mean, it depends on the teachers, but you know you have to grade papers, you have to prepare the lectures. So that's kind of like the the mass of the iceberg. And also, I'm a freelancer, so like a huge amount of my time is spent. Reading what's out there and pitching and arranging and arranging the arrangements. It's, the uh, it's just really tedious bureaucracy, which is a huge time gobbler. Um, but yeah, and also uh, well, I'll ask you too. How long do you you know you can struggle over a review mm. for you know sometimes 
it can take, it can be very quick, and sometimes it's a very laborious process oh to figure God. out what you thought you about know, something. I, no, Terry? Colin's speaking to me because I, <laughs> uh, he's describing in a way my condition. I'm not a full time in that sense drama critic. It's only part of what I do with the journal. I don't write feature pieces. I don't do interviews. I normally, except at the peak of the Broadway season, I don't review more than a couple of shows a week and very often just one. And I know exactly how long it takes me to write a review. I've done it so long, it will take me between three and four hours. I, I'm, I'm so sure of that, that I can build my schedule around it. But it is not the only thing that I do all week. I also write a separate column, not about the theater, for the Wall Street Journal. I write other pieces. And yes, I do spend a pretty fair amount of time uh, reading about theater and the other arts and, and experiencing the other arts. And because theater is a synthesis of the arts, every experience that I have goes into the hopper. Um, uh, but Colin is not right about the life of a staff critic and writer like you, Peter, who, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a real job. <laughs> Uh, but well, but mine's I, I not. think also the 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 the, the days of the the critic who just could like crank out y you know like I mean we have to do everything we we yeah we 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 do features we do interviews uh, we have to spend time getting in Twitter feud with playwrights that just happened to <laughs> me I was called a bot. Well, there's a lot that what? there's a lot that goes um, into reviewing a show other than actually writing the review. I think we all know that. We should yes. also just say that. That there are <laughs> there are times when attending a certain production feels like a full forty hour work week. Oh my God. So <laughs> not always. God love the playwrights and the theater, but let's be real here. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a job that you know is you punch a time clock. I, I also want to say that also the allure of being out every single night. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to say I really do not like critics who complain about having to go to the theater because we are lucky to do that. But it's true that it can be very difficult to have a social life because you're out always when your friends want to go out and you can't. So anyway, so that's kind of like, I can't say that it's a, it's an annoyance, but it's, it's true. So it has an impact on social life. Part of, part of our job is, part of our job is to keep it from becoming. No, a yes, exactly. Crime. It is. I, I'm still, you know what I, for me, it's always like, I've got to kiss a lot of frogs and I live in hope that, you know, I'm, I'm getting through all these shows because the hope that I will see the one that just blows my mind. And, you know, it happens fairly regularly. So right. then you're like, okay, well, this is what we're doing. This is great. Right. And speaking of oh. frogs and princes ah. and princesses, <laughs> let's move on to what we've seen lately and liked or didn't. Uh, Elizabeth, was it a frog or a, a princess? Uh, well, it was a kind of princess, actually. Uh, I was very... Um, I really liked uh, a play that I saw just last night, in fact, called uh, Hurricane Diane uh, by Madeline George. And I had not, I was surprised because I had not, I did not care for Madeline George's previous play, uh, which was a, a Pulitzer finalist. It was called The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence. But this new one is really wonderful. And uh, it's about the, the, the god Dionysus <laughs> coming in uh, as a kind of gender neutral being here called Diane uh, in a New Jersey cul-de-sac and seducing the four housewives who live on the cul-de-sac. And it's incredibly funny. And it kind of, in this last third, takes this weird, wild turn into a Nico apocalypse scene, uh, which I wish had been staged 
better, but you know, okay. Uh, it's still the text was still really good, and there's two fantastic performances in the play uh, by Mia Baron and Daniel Skarstad, who are whose comic timing, both of them, is so pitch perfect and just oh my god, it was delicious. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Terry, um, I am going to talk about what I regard as a frog, and which I think <laughs> that everybody here at the table uh, has, at the very least, sharply mixed feelings about. It is the new off-Broadway revival of Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. Uh, the Roundabout has brought it to its uh, off-Broadway house, the Laura Pels Theater, uh, in a production by a, a small company, the Fiasco Theater, uh, which they did the same thing, I think, two seasons ago with Sondheim's Into the Woods, mm-hmm. which was extremely well-received. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that, so I was very curious, especially because Merrily We Roll Along is Stephen Sondheim's great problem show. It closed, what, after two weeks on Broadway, and mm-hmm. it's never been revived there. Uh, and uh, he and, and George Firth have tinkered with it ever since uh, in an attempt to, to fix its problems. Uh, and it happens that two years ago in Boston at uh, Huntington Theatre Company, I saw what I think they regard as the definitive version of the, the revised show, Directed by Maria Friedman, it was completely artistically successful, not just for the revision, but as a production. And I and every other critic who saw it there thought that it should have come into New York and gone to Broadway. But instead, um, <laughs> Roundabout decided to bring the Fiasco Theater's production uh, to its opera. Well, Broadway actually, let, let me interject that F- Fiasco is a resident company at the Roundabout. So okay, that's how it's institutionally that's, structured. That's probably okay. Yes, well, yes, yes. Look, what they did. There are six of them. They did it on a, a unit set. They share all the roles. They cut it down to an hour and forty-five minutes. Um, uh, essentially, they did to merrily we roll along what Eric Tucker does to the classics uh, with Bedlam Theater Company, except that while Tucker subjects these shows to profound imaginative transformations and does extraordinary things to them, uh, I came away from this production feeling that they basically shrunk uh, merrily for the sake of shrinking it. Uh, the cuts and changes didn't make it better. I, the cast was enthusiastic, but uh, in earnest. <laughs> Ouch! Well, yeah, I mean, they and some of the performances were good, but, but none of them really Oof. startled me. None of them made me feel like I was seeing something new. Uh, and the singing was never of the first oh my God. rank, which is often a problem with Sondheim productions. Or, or even the second. Uh, right. Well, I mean, it, mm. it came and went. But, I mean, the, the point is that this is a problem you run into a lot with Sondheim revivals. Uh, but it's not a problem that you want to be experiencing in a show being put on by the roundabout, especially uh, the first high-profile revival of this great problem show to hit New York, uh, maybe ever. Uh I said in the Wall Street Journal, this is rough, uh, uh, I said that it was like an extraordinarily good college production uh, and that had I seen it under more favorable circumstances, I might have felt better about it, but that it was not the kind of show that I thought ought to be produced by the roundabout in a high-profile house like the Lark Lark I think that I just thought it was a mistake. I think that's a fair comment. Um, And I think, having seen this show, I didn't see the Boston production, but having seen it five or six times in different permutations over the years, (laughs) I don't think it's fixable. And fix is a, you know, to some people anathema, the idea of fixing is not what we should even be discussing. We should just be looking at the work of art. But since 
so many people have tried to fix it. That has been the goal. I think we can say, I can. I feel very um, uh, confident in saying that I just don't think it works. I think the problems for me in creating three characters, none of whom who who end who begin a play miserable, uh, never never conjure anything like curiosity about why they became that. Oh, really? That's. And I, yeah, and I think that <laughs> even most uh, crucially and most woundingly, the character of Frank, who is the central character, is for all intents and purposes a cipher. You never really understand anything about him. He never even gets the kind of song that would help you understand who he is. It's all in reaction to Frank that everything happens in this musical, and I think that's a big problem. And I think that ultimately, it's uh, it's it's Sondheim's Allegro. It's the that which was the Hammerstein, the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that was a very sort of skeletal, sketchy uh, uh, story of a man's life done in a very bare bones way at a time when musicals were very all out. Out, out in front, and <clears throat> I just think, though the score is gorgeous, it hangs on a frame that is rickety to the point where it will never be solid, and I will see it every time it comes, and <laughs> I will feel the same way, I think, every time it's played. Oh, well. Fair enough. All right. Okay. I don't, I don't agree, but <laughs> well, fair enough. And I did, by the way, see They're Into the Woods, and it was really good. Oh, no. I thought it was so poor. Oh, because I liked they, it. A lot, too many of them cannot sing. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Oh, that Into the Woods was torture to me. <laughs> Ugh, I'm not a fan. Well, well anyway. I feel, I feel like I'm going to spend my life seeing Sondheim productions where the singing is not quite good mm. enough. Well. And, uh, you know, I, I do want good acting. I want them both, and Sondheim deserves both. But there are people out there who can give you both, and we don't yeah. see them often. So, P Peter, what what what, oh, what have you seen? All right, <laughs> I, I I just want to say I <laughs> I love you, Terry. I love you, Elizabeth. Oh I think God. you're two of the oh. smartest critics <laughs> oh, going. Oh my God. But this all I can good. say is, what the hell were you thinking? I saw. Be more chill but last you had, night. You had said it already. I had, and I was. I needed to think. Maybe there was something wrong with me. Uh, I, I, I almost tore my eyeballs out of my head and stuffed them in my ears, so that I didn't have to listen or see this terribly directed show. I, I tend to think this might be a sweet and sincere little show with dog roll lyrics um, in some other setting in a small, maybe it sh it's the one that should have been in the, uh, in that, in the Laura Pels uh, and done <laughs> yeah, there. But it's, um, it's directed in a way that, ex that accentuates the, um, the cliched hyper hyperbolic lives of someone imagining teenagers in a context that absolutely had no charm and no wit and uh, I will ooh, predict ooh, ooh, that ooh. this piece is not going to be a sensation on Broadway and judging from the reaction of the audience I saw it with last night they were mystifi as mystified as I was but I will let you two own this one uh, I disavow any emotional connection to what I saw for two and an, two hours and 38 minutes last night at the Lyceum Theater. I, well, all right, I'm, I'm seeing it next Wednesday, so tell me this much, Peter. Is it scaled up significantly from the off-Broadway road? It is, and it's it's <laughs> amplified twice to the twice the decibel levels that oh, that it was. Oh, that sounds good to me. Uh, 
You like that. <laughs> and the um the, they, the the actors have been encouraged to go bigger. Oh God, okay. No. To the point where it's uh I almost found it uh uh you know offensive as a as a as a uh, an, a, an acting exercise. I I, I know these are Ca- talented actors. I've seen many of them and other things, and I, I really lay this at the director's I, I'm, doorstep. I'm, I'm feeling some reluctance, Peter, on uh, making <laughs> <To laughs> you express. Oh, I'm going all Elizabeth on this one. I'm going all out Elizabeth on this one. Oh, my God. Well, uh. <laughs> <laughs> if oh, only you had video it, huh? listeners. They're, they're stunned into, <laughs> into <laughs> submission. <laughs> Both. Elizabeth and Terry are, are absolutely gobsmacked by my stunned, but not into acquiescence. <laughs> no, yes. I would hope not. I'm going back. Um, I'm going back in a couple of weeks. Actually, I had to postpone that one. Uh, oh. But uh, uh, yeah. So anyway, I um, I'm I I, I do want to reiterate <laughs> that I read you both um, with great interest on everything, and except uh, for be more chill. Except for be more chill, but I <laughs> I will read you again, and I'm curious to hear. Uh, how you uh, how how this one hits you this time? I I forgive you in advance. God bless. <laughs> God bless. All right. Well, I guess we're we're almost done. Uh, oh yeah. So anyway, I <laughs> on this very high oh, note, God, now that you've stunned everybody into silence, we'll Peter. reassess whether there's going to be an episode twenty-eight now. I think <laughs> now that I've sort of like well, no, no, taken the wind out of oh, the entire guys, enterprise. Should we spoil the guests that we have lined up for twenty-eight? No, let's oh, tell them. Oh, oh my tell God. Them. Okay, episode twenty-eight. We're going to welcome here in this glamorous studio where we're oh, recording. She's coming here. She's coming here. Cool. Oh my God, she's gonna be here, Laura Benanti. Laura Benanti is gonna be with us for episode 28. So we are so, I can't wait, I can't wait. The studio audience is applauding. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's Lovely. just. I, I, I've never met her and I'm truly looking forward to this experience. In this fact, is... I think it's gonna be a special uh, three on the aisle that will last four hours. Is that what? 14 we, hours, I think 14 we hours. the space for. Yeah. With several intermission and a dinner break. Yeah, yeah. And we, she's requested that we, each of us sing our version of I Could Have Danced All Night. Um, I think we should oh just practice. God. She's in My Fair Lady, for those of you who don't I, know. I, I need a Higgins because I can't even pronounce SpongeBob. <laughs> so... I know. Oh, I would like, love so to hear you do the rain in Spain. That I would be perfect. No. Oh my God. No. 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 I will. No. no right. I cannot. I cannot. Well, anyway, that brings us to a close for this episode. <laughs> um, as forever and always, I'm Peter Marks from the Washington Post. I'm Terry Teachout from the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli from a whole bunch of places. Uh, you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America hosted by American Theatre Magazine, and our producer is the dashing Kirby Pate. Mm. You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Spell them out. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. Write in like Colin did. Ask us <laughs> what we do with our days. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play, especially if you like us. Thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again soon on the Isle with Laura Benetti. Yay. Yay.